Well, good morning once again. It is great to be here with you to learn from God's Word, to to fill our minds with God's truth, and to have our hearts changed, to have true effect take place in our lives. If you would uh, turn your Bibles to Romans 9, I'm just going to read a couple verses. Today will be more of a more of a, a systematic theology than exposition of uh, any one passage. Uh, but I, I have a few verses I want to read that sort of will, will set us up with God's Word. It's not normally how I do things, but that's how I felt led to do this Sunday. So Romans 9, we'll do verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The next one I want to read for you is uh, Romans 6, 1. So just back maybe a couple pages. Romans 6, 1. Paul again says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? These are these questions that are coming up. Uh, And then again in the same chapter, chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. These are just, again, questions that are going to set us up for what we're going to study from God's Word today, let's pray and ask God to, to, to lead this time. Father God, I thank you first and foremost for the salvation that you have made, made possible by, by putting your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world and then placing him under your wrath in our place for our sins. I thank you that we can, uh, by, by faith, trust in his work and have eternal salvation rather than eternal condemnation. And God, I thank you today that we have this time to, to mine the riches of your word. But God, I'm asking for a specific help today. I'm asking that as we focus on certain aspects of your word, of your self-revelation, that we would not become imbalanced in any way, God, but that we, we would see the entirety of your word and what you have revealed to us. I pray that we would not hold one Uh, piece of theology over and against other pieces of theology that you have revealed to us, Lord. May we have a a full, holistic understanding of you and of your word that we might most be changed by it and most bring you glory, Lord. So today I pray that today you would just help us to, to be and become a people, a congregation who take our lives seriously, who take our thoughts, our words, and our actions seriously, 
and take our salvation seriously, even though we know that you are the sovereign God of the universe, sovereign over each and every tiny aspect, including salvation. God, help us to turn our eyes towards you continually, that we might do what pleases you and do it by your power. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So if you haven't been with us or if you just need a refresher because we took a week off from missions conference, uh, you might know we've been um, studying the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election unto salvation. And we began talking about this doctrine because we were studying through Genesis and we came to Genesis chapter 25 where God tells Rebekah and Isaac that the older brother would serve the younger brother. That is, Esau would serve Jacob. Jacob would be the one receiving the covenant blessings, and Esau would not. And that, that was told to them before they were even born, before Jacob and Esau were even born. And this led us to a, a cross-reference in the Bible in Romans chapter 9, where Paul explicitly quotes that passage there in Genesis 25, and what Paul tells us is the reason that Rebekah and Isaac were told this, that the older would serve the younger, was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not based on works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. That may have sounded a little confusing, but I was just quoting Romans 9 there, that, that Paul says, election, eternal salvific election was taking place in Genesis 25. And Paul's using that as, as a support, showing uh, the Roman church that, hey, election's been going on since the beginning. And so I, I didn't want to just, you know, kind of say that and then move on. I wanted to take some time to think about this doctrine, to, to, to think through a bunch of the different aspects. I, I know I won't exhaust it, um, but I, I intend for, you can't exactly hold me to it because I, I don't know for sure what God will lead, but I t intend for this to be our last week of this side study of the doctrine of election. And what I've tried to do is first show you, you know, that, that the doctrine of election is biblical and what it, what it entails and, and um, you know, how it worked with Jacob and Esau, but, you know, how it works in all of our lives. And then the past couple of weeks... Um, I've been trying to, to show you that it's, it's not, uh, not remarkable. It's, it's, it's very understandable that when we hear this, this deep uh, uh, doctrine of election, that we would have maybe questions or, or troubles arise in our minds. And that, that's completely understandable. It really is. And I've, by the way, said from the beginning, if, if you don't see it in God's word, then you don't have to agree with me and we will still be friends. We will still, I pray, love one another. And, um, but but I, I just wanted to tell us that, that there's, there are hard aspects to this doctrine of election. There, there absolutely are. But the problem is we, we, we need to, to dig in and sort of see how these truths work together. I'll tell you what I, what I mean by that. Um, I was talking with uh, Chris Petty, the former pastor here. It was maybe a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, uh, he kind of had heard that I was doing this, this series. And he said, you know, it wasn't too long ago I was talking to a guy. 
and, um, and, and we disagreed on this doctrine of election. And uh, Chris said, well, you know, how about we talk about it? Let's see what the Bible says about the doctrine of election. And here's how the guy responded. He said, you know what? You have your verses and I have mine that support my point of view. How about I'll just go on believing my verses and you go on believing yours? That's a problem. Chris said, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's not at all what I want to do. I, I want to take all of God's word, all of it uh, uh, that God has revealed to us. I, I don't want to believe some to the exclusion to the other, uh, ex- exclusion, you know, to, to the other passages. He said, so why don't we look at your passages, <laughs> you know, your so-called your passages and my passages, and then let's talk about it. Let's see how they work together, how they complement one another. And this is a huge error on uh, both sides of the debate, you could say, uh, of this theological understanding, is, is taking some verses and then just running with them to the exclusion of all else that God has said. And so that's why I've been trying to look at these questions, you know, um, that might arise in our minds, because we need to reconcile these things. Uh, one question, I'll just list for you quickly the questions that I've, I've tried to answer so far. Uh, my first one was, if election doesn't feel good, uh, doesn't that mean I don't have to believe it? You know, and, and we, we looked at biblically, you know, there may be reasons you don't feel good about the doctrine of election, as we are finite creatures with finite minds, sin-marred minds even. But, but none of those reasons that we might not feel good about the doctrine are reason enough to reject God's word when we see it uh, clearly. And we certainly don't want to be those who twist God's word to make it say what we want to, uh, what we want to believe and what we're comfortable with. So uh, election doesn't feel good, so shouldn't I just not believe it? No, no, you, you should believe it, even if it doesn't feel good. And God, God will help you there uh, with things catching up. The second question I, I uh, brought up was really the most common argument against Uh, what I've been teaching directly from Romans 9, and that is, is it possible that Romans 9 is just talking about national Israel? This is just talking about God electing the nation of Israel for a certain uh, role in redemption history, not not individuals, not even uh, election unto salvation, but just this national election uh, unto vocation or, or carrying out this purpose. But we saw that, that on that particular sermon that Romans 9 ha- has tons of pointers that make it very clear that it's, it's talking about individual, unconditional election unto salvation. That that's primarily what Paul is talking about. Otherwise, most of Paul's arguments and questions and uh, answers wouldn't even make sense if that's not what he's talking about. Um, the third question I asked, and this was on a Sunday evening, so if you don't come on Sunday evenings, you might not have heard this one, and I cannot go too deep on this, but the, the question was, doesn't God will, or want, doesn't God want everyone to be saved? Isn't it God's will that all be saved? And we said, there certainly are a few passages that say that, and, and we, we believe those passages um, I've got those in front of me. 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9, Ezekiel 18.23. These make it very clear that God desires for all people to be saved. 
But the fact is, the skeptic says, not everyone gets saved. Therefore, if God is sovereign and he carries out his will, then, then this doctrine of election cannot be true. Because if God were sovereign and, you know, uh, could save people in this way, then, then certainly everyone would be saved if that's what he desires. And I'm a little hesitant to even dig into this one because it could so easily be misunderstood. But basically what we saw from God's word is that there is a difference between God's will of desire and God's will of decree. And so while we said, yes, God desires that all be saved from the heart, his heart desires that, he also desires that his glory be put on display, both his grace and compassion and his power in his wrath, in his justice. Therefore, the, the, the doctrine of election is what he decrees. He, he, he decrees that some be saved, not all be saved. Again, I hope that was an okay par- paraphrase of, of my whole, you know, full sermon on that. Um, then, finally, during the missions conference, I asked, well, if the doctrine of election is true, then doesn't that make missions and evangelism pointless? If God's going to save them, then why are we going to go out and tell them? Uh, God's going to do it anyways. And we saw that the Bible makes it very clear that when we are called unto salvation, we're not only called uh, you know, to, to be saved, but to proclaim. We're, we're called not only to salvation, but to propagation, to, to spreading the gospel, because God, as much as he has decreed that certain people will be saved from their just condemnation, God has also decreed that he will use people as, as, as tools to carry out that doctrine of election or to carry out the election of those specific people. So th- those are the questions I've asked and answered so far because we need to look at the whole Bible. How does the sovereignty of God and election match up with these other texts in the Bible? And today, the question I want to address is this. Doesn't the doctrine of election eliminate human free will and responsibility? If God is entirely sovereign over everything, everything, even who will be saved, then doesn't that negate human free will, human choice and responsibility? That is my, my question. Um, and and this, is, this is really important because there are so many passages in the Bible that teach us that we, we do need to call upon the Lord, that we do need to believe in our hearts. Uh, but, but then we see these, these doctrine of election passages and we say, well, I mean, do we really have to believe? Is that really necessary? Because, I mean, you know, uh, if, if God ha- has chosen before the foundation of the world who he is going to, to graciously save. I want to remind you, no one deserves salvation. I think that's an important uh, drum to keep beating. No one deserves salvation, and God chooses some to graciously save. Then, then can anyone really even exercise this, this free will, this choice, if God has decreed it beforehand? And if God has decreed beforehand who, who, who he will save and those whom he will uh, pass over, then can anyone really be held responsible and held accountable for their actions and for their choices 
to believe or not to believe, to rebel or to obey. Can people really be held responsible if God decreed what would take place beforehand? These are serious questions. These are, these are serious questions because, you know, at some level you could think of God's sovereignty and, and this doctrine of election as though we in this world are simply puppets in God's hands and he's making us do things. Or, or maybe we're just robots that God has programmed to, to, to act in a certain way at a certain time and, and you know, we're just, we're just acting out of what God has, has programmed us to do. And, you know... You think about it, if you're doing a, a, a puppet skit and one puppet does something bad, you don't punish the puppet, right? He's not the one who did something bad. Um, my, my kids aren't old enough yet, but I've seen older kids do it. They'd be like, oh, I didn't hit you. The bat hit you. Okay, well, who was holding the bat? You know, like, you got to explain that to a kid. It, it, it doesn't separate you from the action. You were the one holding the bat. You did the hitting. And so you don't punish the bat. You punish the one holding it. I could go into a really big aside there, but I'm not going to. Anyways, are we to blame? Can we be blamed? Or should God be blamed if God is truly sovereign? Should God be blamed? Should God be condemned for our sin if he is truly sovereign, even over this doctrine of election? And so I kind of want to split this up into two categories for you. You know, the question is, doesn't the doctrine of election eliminate human free will and responsibility? But I want to, I want to separate that into two uh, words, two categories. One would be innocence. The first one is innocence. And that would be, again, this idea that people can't really be held accountable for their sin if God has preordained, foreordained that they would not be saved and that he would save others. They can't really be held accountable. I mean, because if you follow this line of logic, it would be to say that if God's in control, then he's the one to blame, not you. You know, um, there, there's, you know, the old saying, the devil made me do it. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> Satan tempts us and stuff, but that's bad enough to pass the buck to Satan, Right? What about when we pass the buck to God? God made me do it. That's what we're talking about here. And this is, this is the, the assumption some make, the, the conclusion some draw from this doctrine of, of God's sovereignty and this doctrine of election. So that's innocence. People can't truly be accountable. In fact, God should be accountable for their sin. The second one I, I uh, call presumption. So you had innocence and now presumption. This one is... It doesn't really matter what I do, because if I'm elect, I'll be saved anyways. <laughs> if God has chosen me uh, from before the foundation of the earth to be saved, then it really doesn't matter how I respond. Uh, I really don't have to obey God. I really don't have to trust God. I really don't have to love God, because he's going to save me anyways if I'm elect. If I'm not elect, I guess he won't, but you know, uh, maybe I, I just believe I'm elect for whatever special reason. And so I presume upon the grace of God, in this uh, electing grace of God, that he'll save me no matter how I respond to him and how I respond to the gospel. This is the, 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 the misunderstanding of presumption. By the way, you, you think I'm just making this stuff up. Number one, these are both in the Bible, the, these questions that some have felt these ways. Uh, but there are even some who would say today, because they... 
so misunderstandedly understand the doctrine of election that they would say there are people in the world who are saved and don't even know about it. I mean, people really say this. So-called theologians really say it. They say they've never heard the gospel, they've never repented of their sins, they never trusted in Christ, but they're saved because they are elect and, and God's going to save them anyways. There are people who really say that. They draw this doctrine of election to that conclusion. And I want to help guard us against either of those errors, of this error of innocence. I don't deserve it because God's in control. I don't deserve punishment. And presumption. I'll be okay because if I'm elect, I'll be saved anyway, so I don't really have to worry about how I respond to God. So I'm just going to answer those two questions. My two points are, are basically answers to those two questions of, of innocence and presumption. So number one, if you want to write this down, you're, you're welcome to. Number one, this is a truth. This isn't an error. A tr number one truth. No one will go to hell apart from truly rejecting God from their heart. No one will go to hell apart from truly rejecting God from their heart. They have made a choice. They are responsible. And God is not uh, blameworthy in the least. That is, that is a truth. And I want to show you that, that even though the doctrine of election and God's sovereign really is sovereign over everything— that no one will go to hell apart from truly rejecting God from their heart. They will do what they want to do. Um, let me just kind of give you a, a foundation for this. First, you can just think about, you don't have to turn there because it'll be so quick. Genesis 1.31, you have the creation week. On the sixth day, God creates man, and he says there, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, I can't dig in too deep here, but that, that idea that it was very good is that there was, there was no admixture, no, no combination of evil in all of creation. God created everything, the water, the plants, uh, you know, the, the skies, the birds, uh, the, the beasts of the field, and humans, and all of it was perfect. It was perfect. It was very good. We were created, all of creation was uh, made by God entirely good. You don't have to go very far in, in uh, Genesis to see, you know, mankind still spoiled that, right? They, 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 they had one rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then they, they eat. They, they Eve specifically, it tells us, looked upon it, and she saw that it was... Uh, good to look at it was uh desirous to uh, or good good for food and that it was good to make one wise anyways and and so she she took and ate from the heart but what's really going on there we can see just in a few passages um one one i want to draw your attention to we use this this passage often as romans one if you're still in romans that should be easy romans chapter one beginning in verse 18 We'll go to verse 25. This is going to tell us sort of what happened. And you tell me whether or not God seems to blame in this and whether or not mankind seems to blame in what happened. Verse 18, Romans 1, 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we saw in Genesis, God made mankind good, very good. But here in Romans, we see that men, humankind, rebel against God. They, they suppress the truth. The, the, the truth about God, about His greatness, about His majesty, about His worthiness to be glorified and worshipped. They see that and they say, nope, not going to do it. So they are without excuse, it says. They made an exchange from the glory of the immortal God for these uh, images, which we could go into that term images, but these images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged God. You see that there again in 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. None of that is God's fault. All of that highlights mankind's willful rebellion against God from the heart. They suppress the truth. They exchange God for lesser, not true gods. There's just more verses. We can just stay in Romans for a second. Go to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul says... Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, that's speaking of God, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." There's so much there, but you see that that they are storing up wrath, not because of something God is doing, but because of their hard and impenitent hearts. And it says that there there will be this righteous judgment. That is, a correct, a just judgment will be made based on the way these people responded, the way all humanity responds to God. And it says they are storing up wrath for themselves. You are storing up wrath for yourself. Go down to verse 8 of the same chapter. It says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The self-seeking heart. Don't obey the truth. 
but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. And I know I've quoted these verses a lot, but chapter 3, go to verse 9, and we'll just do to verse 12, 3, 9. Paul says, What then? Are, the Jews, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. My, my conclusion there, just from, just from a few passages, and we'll, we'll see more here in a moment that will just continue to show this, the, these patterns, is that God is never to blame. The, the Bible never shows God to blame for sin in, in any way. Mankind is always shown as the one making choices from the heart to rebel against God. Therefore, God's just wrath is upon them. We are not innocent, and God is not blameworthy. We deserve wrath, and God deserves worship. So, that kind of leaves us in this place. You say, okay, well, you've just said God isn't responsible for this. He isn't accountable for this. Well, doesn't that just mean that God isn't sovereign over human decisions? <laughs> if God is in no way responsible or accountable or condemnable or blameworthy, then, then doesn't that mean he, he has no control over what people do? My answer is no. It does not mean that because we need to look at the entirety of Scripture, not just our passages and leaving out their passages. You know, we're looking at all of the Bible here. And so what I'm going to say to you is mankind is responsible for their sin, yet God is sovereign even over sin. Mankind is responsible for their sin, yet God is sovereign even over sin. There are... A bunch of examples, if you're willing to st study God's Word um, and, and to see these things. Um, but I'll just give you a couple examples. One, by the way, that's a really good example would be uh, the story of Joseph uh, and his brothers. You know, they sell him into Egypt. He becomes second in command in Egypt, and, you know, God used it for good. What his brothers uh, desired for evil, God used it for good. Um, God, God desired it for good and even destined it for good. God was in control of that. But I'm, I'm not going to do that because we'll get there in our study of Genesis. Uh, I want to show you just a, a couple examples here that, that you may not have thought of. You may have. Um, but before I even start these examples, I just want to show you what you're looking for here. You need to notice a couple of things that are, that are very plain in the text. First, God himself commits no sin in, in the text. Yet God is a uh, director of what takes place. God, God is sovereign over it. So God, God doesn't commit sin, yet he is sovereign over it. And you'll see, see that in the text. And, and God holds the sinner accountable for their actions. God holds the sinner accountable for their actions, even if it is accomplishing God's sovereign purpose. Let me show you. Uh, first, if you, if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. 
Again, this is, these aren't the only places this stuff is in the Bible. These are just uh, ones that I think are uh, most easily seen. God is sovereign even over the sins of people, yet he is not to blame and the sinner is held accountable. Isaiah chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 5. Verse 5. This is uh, talking about, I'll just tell you, uh, this is talking about when God uses the king of Assyria, Assyria, to punish faithless Israel. So God had told Israel many times, you know, through the prophets, you guys need to repent, you need to remain faithful to me, you need to do away with your idols and and your sin and, and trust me, follow me. And they continued to rebel. And so God sends a punisher into Israel, namely the, the empire of Assyria, the army of Assyria to invade. So let's listen first uh, to the fact that God was sovereign over Assyria going and attacking. Look at verse 5. So Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 5, it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. This is God speaking. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send them. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. It sure sounds like God is a sovereign over Assyria going into uh, invade Israel. They're carrying out God's plan, God's purpose to, to discipline the nation of Israel. Now listen, as we pick up in verse uh, 7, how, how this act, although it's under God's sovereignty, is not an act of obedience from the king of Assyria, but rather an act of sin. So, pick up in verse 7. But he, that's the king, but he does not so intend. Sorry, I'll, I'll just pause there. For, I just want to make sure we're getting this. He does not so intend. That is, God has just said, he's the rod of my anger. He's, he's carrying out my fury. I, I'm sending him, you know, to discipline Israel, yet he does not so intend. He doesn't intend to be the hand of God. He doesn't intend to carry out God's purposes. So we'll pick that up again, verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So what you see in, in uh, the, the king's heart is this uh, desire to destroy other people, to use his power, to use his strength uh, as this, this mighty empire to destroy people and to cut off nations, not a few. Uh, again, if you read the, the whole passage, I mean, he's just saying, like, I lift up my, my rulers. They become like kings themselves because I conquer all these other nations. He's, he's power hungry. He's, he's covetous of, of these other nations. He's got his own nation, yet he has to go attack the others. He just wants to destroy them. He wants to take over them. That's what's happening in his heart. It says his heart does not think, think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Now, Jump down to verse 12 with me. We'll see whether or not God will hold him responsible for this. Remember, God is using him. God is sovereign over this. It's carrying out God's plan. Uh, 
Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that's talking about after this has taken place, this attack and this destruction has taken place, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. You see that? After God's work is fulfilled through the king of Assyria, he will punish the king of Assyria because from the king of Assyria's point of view, he's doing what he wants to do. He's, he's, he's satisfying his lust for power, his lust for nations, for, for, for prestige. He's satisfying those things, even a lust to, to destroy, it says there. That's what's coming from his heart. And even though God's purpose is sovereignly being fulfilled through this sin, he will be held accountable for the sins of his heart and the actions that he carries out. You see that? God is entirely sovereign there. I, I just see no other way that that could possibly be taken, yet it's the sinful heart of the this Assyrian king, and, and he will be punished for that. So that's one example of, of God sovereignly working, yet God is not to blame, and the person is held accountable for their sin. The second one I want to look at is Judas, Judas Iscariot. Uh, this is, you know, Judas is one of the 12 disciples. He travels around with Jesus for about three years, and then he, in the end, betrays him. John 17, 12. Again, I'm just kind of running through these. You're welcome to try to keep up, but <laughs> for time's sake, I'm just going to keep reading them. John 17, 12. Jesus is praying to the Father. Uh, speaking of the 12 disciples, he's praying to the Father. He says this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who's the son of destruction? This is Judas. It's Judas he's talking about. By the way, this is um, just before the whole uh, betrayal takes place and all that. So he's praying this is going to happen, and he's praying to God, I have kept the disciples, all of them except for the son of destruction. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, if you, we studied it not too long ago, we looked at Judas and he was a man who was lifelong driven by greed and selfish ambition. Uh, John tells us that he was a thief. He'd been stealing from the money bag. He, he was their treasurer, and he had been stealing from the money bag while they're going around with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's stealing from the money bag, and, and he had this selfish ambition. And, and what we see, you know, uh, through the Gospels is that that he realizes, okay, I'm not going to be able to profit from Jesus anymore. He's telling us he's going to die. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to profit from his death. I'm going to betray him. And I'm going to actually get a good standing with the religious leaders by betraying him. So he goes to the, the, the priest and says, hey, I, I can betray him. You know, and they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. He says, okay. So you look at it from Judas's point of view, and he wants to do evil. He's greedy. He, he, he wants this prestige. Yet God was sovereign over this taking place. As it said there, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that, again, is multiple times through, through the Gospels. You see Jesus even telling the disciples. He tells them straight up, this is going to happen. I will be betrayed by one of you in order that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And we see this there. And you say, well, what scriptures are to be fulfilled? I can't read them all for you, but I'll just list for you Psalm 41.9, Psalm 55.12-14, and then 20 and 21. Then Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. And, and all of these portray that there will be an insider, a friend, who betrays the coming Messiah. And so, you have that. You have that, that God knows is going to happen. He is sovereign over it taking place, even over Judas being chosen as one of the twelve disciples, having this opportunity even to sin against Christ in this, this crazy way. So you'd say, well then, Judas can't help it. You know, if God's sovereignly ordained that this will take place, that he will be the son of destruction, then it, it must be God's fault, not Judas's. Well, let's listen to the way Jesus talks about this. Mark 14, this is in Matthew as well, but Mark 14 is the one I chose to, to read. Verses 17 through 21. Mark 14, 17 through 21. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Once again, he knows this is going to happen. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas is definitely held responsible here. God is not held responsible or blameworthy in this. Why? Because Judas is making these decisions out of his own heart. God is sovereign over these things. Yet from his heart is flowing this, this greed, this selfishness. And Jesus says, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. This came from his heart. This is not God's fault, even though God is sovereign over it. Now, I understand that that's complicated. <laughs> I do. So how can God sovereignly ordain that things will be happening, yet not uh, be, be worthy of blame or condemnable? And why, why should we take the blame? Well, the Bible tells us we are to blame. In addition, the Bible tells us that God is never to blame for sin. Now, how, how all of that works out in the wisdom of God is, is honestly more than we can probably comprehend. But I, I do want to give us uh, just some foundational truths that we have to remember. And I've sort of already alluded to this, but some foundational truths we need to remember lest we put God on the dock and say, God, you're the one responsible for sin. You're the one responsible for those who do not uh, uh, you know, enter into salvation. It's your fault. Lest we do that, we need to remember these foundational truths. First, God can do no wrong. I mean that very literally. God can do no wrong. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light. 
and in him there is no darkness at all. Again, just so many verses. I'm just going to keep going, though. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God can never commit any type of evil. This next passage uh, affirms that, but actually goes further. God not only cannot do wrong, but God never tempts anyone to do wrong. Again, oh, sovereign God, you know, you had this planned and, and then I did it. Well, then you must have been the one that tempted me to do it. No, 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 no. God is not at fault even for the temptation. James, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. This is, this is very important, foundational truth. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see that? God can't even, God can't sin. He can't even be tempted to sin. God himself tempts no one. We say, well then, where does it come from? From your heart, it says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God tempts no one. Now, we need to have another foundational truth, because you could say, well, I don't know about that. Well, let me explain. This is my third point. God allows temptation to come but he even always gives a way out. God does allow temptation to come. It's not that God can't stop the temptation uh, from happening, um, because again, God is sovereign, but God does allow temptation to come. But even with that temptation, he gives a way out. I'll just, an example of uh, God allowing temptation. You think of the book of Job, the opening chapter. Uh, Job, or uh, God is, is in his courts and the angels are coming to him and it says that Satan comes along with them and they begin to start a conversation. God and Satan have this conversation about Job and God says, have you seen my servant Job? He is upright and righteous in all his ways. And, and Satan says, well, of course he is. Look at, look at how, how blessed he is, how, how plush you have made his life. You know what? I bet if those things were taken away, he would reject you. And, and uh, Satan says, you know, why don't you let me do that? And God says, all right, you can. You can take away uh, his earthly blessedness, and we'll see. And so God allows Satan to test Job's devotion to God. God allows that, that temptation to happen. Now, we, by the way, see that Job doesn't turn away from God. He, uh, by the end of the book, is, is nearer and dearer to God than when the book started, um, but God did allow that temptation. And we see in addition to that, these are just important things. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 explicitly says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he has also provided the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God made me do it? No, no, no. God allowed this temptation to happen. But even with that temptation, he didn't allow it to be more than, or it says, not beyond your ability. So you really could reject this temptation. In addition, he has provided a way of escape. 
So God allows the temptation. He doesn't provide it in the same way. You see this, this active providing of a way out of this temptation that God has allowed to come in. And this temptation should not have been beyond your ability in the first place. God cannot do wrong. God tempts no one to do wrong. God does allow temptation to come sovereignly, but always gives a way out. And so what you conclude from that is the person makes a real choice, and they are really responsible for that decision, even though God is sovereign over the event. Again, point number one was no one will go to hell apart from truly rejecting God from the heart. They're responsible for their sin, and God is not blameworthy in the least, even though he is sovereign over what happens. I, I, I again, I, I wanted to say I realize this is hard to understand, but Paul actually takes this up. It's one of the passages, the first passage I read uh, when we opened up in Romans 9. This is how he responds uh, to, to that similar question of, can I really be blameworthy? Isn't God kind of at fault? Romans 9, 18 through 21. In, in verse 18, Paul kind of summarizes the doctrine of election. So then, he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. <laughs> That's God's sovereignty. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Paul's point is, you're questioning, the way you're asking the question is, is betraying your heart behind the question. We see the question there, why does he still find fault? How could God still possibly condemn us if he's sovereign over the universe? And then you even see the later question, why have you made me like this? That's saying, God, why have you made me a sinner? Why did you make me commit these sins and you're still going to condemn me for them? And Paul's answer is basically, know your place, man. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You don't understand the things of God? That's okay. At some level, try to understand. It's okay to not perfectly understand these, these complex thoughts, but what is not okay is to bring a charge against the righteous, sovereign, just, holy God of the universe. That is what's not okay. That's what Paul says. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God. That's another way of saying, shut your mouth. Don't talk about God that way. God is entirely sovereign. He says that. He, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Yet God is not at fault. God is not the one who made us be that way. It comes from our heart. Who are we to answer back to God, to bring a charge against God? So that was problem number one, right? This, this innocence, I couldn't possibly be blameworthy. In fact, it's God who's blameworthy. But we see here, no one will go to hell apart from truly rejecting God from their heart. And God won't be to blame in the least. 
So, we move to question number two, and I will be really quick here. It won't be nearly as long as, as question one, but the, 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 the other problem, rather, not, not question, problem is this pre- presumption that it doesn't really matter what I do. If I'm elect, I'm elect, I'm in, I'm in. You know, I don't have to really worry about how I respond to God. But here's point number two to answer that problem of presumption. Point number two, no one will be saved without truly trusting and loving God from the heart as their greatest treasure. No one will be saved. People have this idea of this doctrine of election as though God is going to drag people into heaven kicking and screaming, no, 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 I don't want to go. You can't save me. You can't, no, no, no. That will never, ever, ever happen. That is to miss the sovereign grace of God working in the person's heart, this, this calling that takes place, this uh, <laughs> grace that he shows us is, is so good that we should desire it. He opens our eyes. He, he softens our hearts from our sinful ways. And then we do love God. We do trust God. We do desire God above all else. Uh, just a, a couple passages. James 1.12. See, we've already looked at a lot of James, so I'll, I'll pick that one. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. By the way, another one is 2 Timothy 4.8 that says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see that love? It doesn't talk about those who God chose and drugged to heaven, those who love him, those who love his appearing. Uh, here's one that actually ties together election with this type of love. That is James 2.5. James 2.5 says, Listen, my b- beloved brothers, has God, sorry, has not God chosen, has not God chosen, that's election, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Do you see that? This doctrine of election, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God does not do away with the fact that in order to be saved, I must truly love God. I must truly trust God. It says there, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. They believe God. They love God. And we know that from that, you know, in order to be saved, we we turn from our sins and we trust in God that is salvation by grace through faith. But we see that that is God's work in us. That, that, that's how these doctrines work together. God is working that salvation in us. He has chosen us to be rich in faith. He has chosen us to be those who love him. Again, there, there are more passages, but I'm going to keep moving. I want to say to this, because this is the idea of presumption, the problem of presumption. It says simply, well, if God is really sovereign, if God is truly gracious, then there's no responsibility on me, and I, I can still just be saved. If I'm elect, God will make, make, make it happen. He'll, he'll bring me to heaven. That is simply not true. That is simply not true. 
We think about passages like uh, Romans 10.10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth... I should have gone back one verse, sorry, Romans (laughs) 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There must be this believing. There must be this confession of sin, this confession that Jesus is Lord, this confession that God has made the way of salvation through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And We believe that and we love him for it. Without that, there is no salvation. So if you do not have those things, Uh, There's no reason to presume that God is simply just going to elect you and bring you to heaven. If if you don't have those things, you can go ahead and presume that you are not elect. (laughs) But the question is today, is God working on your heart? Is he softening you today? As you hear his words, as as you hear about his glory, about his mercy, and even about his justice, is there a desire in your heart to say, I want to call on that Lord. I want to turn from my sin. I want to cling to him. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to experience him. If those things are happening, then you can start to say, okay, I can respond to this. God is, I have a wicked heart. I have, I have sinned against God. I don't deserve salvation, but God is working on my heart and he's working to sovereignly give me uh, this, this faith unto salvation And I would say at that moment, it is your responsibility to respond to God in faith and obedience. It is your responsibility. We cannot, must not shirk our responsibility to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Let me just give you an example of this. It's a passage that's always just kind of stuck with me. Uh, We see this this evidence that comes with salvation. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10. It gives us this doctrine of election and it gives us this responsibility and response. Paul says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. We, we know that he has chosen you, Thessalonians. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's that God working in you that came not only with just mere words, human words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul goes on to say, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. They, They received this word. They didn't reject it. They received this word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. There's this evidence. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. There's this evidence that there's this salvation that's taken place. For they themselves, these, these onlookers, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, 
who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you see all of those things held in tension right there? You have God, we, we know that he has chosen you. Why? Because clearly his word came with power and full conviction. Well, how do we know that it came with power and full conviction? Because you, you, you've become an imitator of us and of our Lord. You have this, uh, what would you say, um, reputation for having received the word even in affliction. That means they were being persecuted for their faith, yet they received it anyways. It was not some easy believism. Uh, it was that they, they received Jesus even though the Christians were hated. And it says there, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. These are choices you really make to turn to God from idols. But you can know that it's God working there behind the scenes, working in your heart. I'll tell you, um, there's so many other things I could say, but I, I want to drop this because um, some of us, even in salvation, we might feel like we don't have this responsibility to uh, obey God, to follow God, pursue God, walk faithfully with God. We, we said a moment ago that it is those who love God, who love his appearing, that are truly saved, right? There's that love. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You want to know if you're elect, if you truly love God? You keeping God's commandments? Maybe not perfectly, but are you, is this a pursuit to keep God's commandments, to do that which pleases God? Uh, you say, well, maybe that's just an anomaly. Well, verse 21 of chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Interesting. Only those who are keeping God's commandments are those who, who love him. So I would say to you, friends, if you are walking in sin, patterns of sin, unforgiveness, greed, lust, uh, just name it, you, you know, falsehood, just whatever your sin, you're walking in it, and you say, I don't really care because I kind of like this sin. There's no reason to believe that you are elect. And I would say that's all the more reason to fall on your face and plead with God, not to say, why does he still find fault? Why have you made me like this, God? No, to say, God, change me. Change me, because you are sovereign, you can do it. And even for the Christian, we know that we continue to, to work our salvation. There, another passage, I, I just love this one, because it brings these things uh, together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he said, you've, you've been obeying in my presence, but that much more in my absence, he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see that? Work out your own salvation, Philippian church. Work it out. You have real responsibility for your actions. How can you work out your salvation? For it is God who works in you. Both to will, that's, that's to desire, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, if you 
believe you are elect, if you are, believe you are a Christian, work out your salvation. There is still a very real responsibility to, to, to walk in faith and repentance with the Lord. I wish I didn't have to say to continue walking in repentance, but it's, it's true. Until the day we die, we will be walking in repentance and faith in God, saying, God, I, I messed up there, but change me. I don't want to continue in that. I, I'm going to turn from that sin I just committed. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is not to blame for sin, but God gets the credit for our salvation. He gets the credit for the good that comes out of us, and yet we are still responsible to do that good. I would say, by the way, there, there are some other things there. God really is pleased by the good you do. There, there, again, plenty of places in the Bible, this is an act of worship, uh, Romans 12 uh, says, you know, Give yourself a, a living sacrifice, this, this, this act of worship to God. It's pleasing to him. You really can please God by your acts of o- obedience, even though it's God working in you. <laughs> I, I think that's amazing. And you really will be rewarded for eternity because of the good you do, even that God worked in you. That is a good and gracious God. Who wants to point to that God and say, why have you made me like this? He's a good God our responsibility. It's our fault when we sin. And let it not be said of any of us that we put the blame on God. We take it. But God gets the credit for the good we do. There's no reason for pride in our lives. None at all. Yet we pursue righteousness with all that we have. Because we love God, we obey his commands. God is pleased by that and even rewards us for that obedience. Let us not be ones who take little pet doctrines out of the Bible to the exclusion of all else the Bible teaches. Yes, God is sovereign, but yes, you are responsible. You are responsible to receive the word of God, to believe with faith, to repent of your sin. You are responsible to do that. If you you don't trust in God for your salvation, it's on you. You are without excuse, the Bible says. And we should still work out our salvation. God's working in us, but we work with him. As I finish this, you know, series, whatever, mini side series on election, I, again, I... I, uh, I want to urge you, if these things trouble you, if it brings up anger in you, if it brings up anything like that, you can talk to me about it. I'm here. I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. I want to walk with you through these things. But I want us to all be obedient to God's word, at least be uh, honest with God's word and what it, what it says. And, you know, if you believe differently, if you honestly believe that, then that, that's okay. I understand that. But we need to, to walk through these things in unity as a church into God's glory. That's what it's all about in the end is God's glory. But from that we receive joy. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would help any of us who bring a charge against you, that you would give us the grace to take you off the stand, that we would no longer condemn you, that we would no longer accuse you, 
that we would no longer acquit ourselves just because you are sovereign. God, we confess that we don't understand all of these things, that our, our minds cannot comprehend the wisdom of you, an infinite God, perfectly. But God, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe it, even when we can't always make perfect sense of the, the paradoxes, of the, the confusing um, doctrines. God, if we see them plainly, plainly in your word, help us to believe them by faith and find out how we can glorify you by believing them. God, it is my prayer that if anyone is in this room that does not know you, they haven't trusted in you, they love their sin rather than, uh, than the glorious God, they've, they've made that exchange and they're sticking with it, Lord, I pray that you would prick their heart, that you would soften their heart, that you would give them a fear of your wrath, and that you would give them a longing for your glory. Oh God, you have made a salvation for them that is infinitely glorious, and it came at the cost of your Son taking that wrath. Let them trust in you, Lord. Help them to trust in you and help them to take responsibility for doing that. And God, for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us to take responsibility for working out our salvation with fear and trembling, not being lax about it, not becoming lazy because you are sovereign. Let us dig in. Let us turn our eyes resolutely to you, walking in faith and obedience. This I pray in your Son's name. Amen. Oh God, I 